are you jonesing for Jessica? Uh, welcome to Jonesing for Jessica, the podcast that covers the Netflix and Marvel series, Jessica Jones. We're going episode by episode, discussing each show, and on tap tonight is the 12th episode, a.k.a. Take a Bloody Number. As usual, we are joined by some special guests, but before we introduce them, I want to kick it over to my co-host, Alana. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Um, for all of our listeners to the show, this episode is going to focus on episode 12 of Jonesy for Jessica. We are going to avoid any spo- spoilers for the finale. Um, so if you haven't seen that yet, and I haven't, uh, you're good to go on that. And um, we have two guests joining us today. Uh, we've got Kendra James, double majoring in cinema studies and anthropology. Kendra graduated from Oberlin in 2010 and immediately started working in a talent management company in New York City. When running a blog chronicling her horrible first, quote, real job experiences got boring, she started searching for a writing outlet similar to the ones in college, which led to a position as the lead television correspondent with Racialicious.com, which people really need to be visiting, R-A-C-I-A-L-I-C-I-O-U-S.com. I think I said that slow enough that people could get it down. Um, <laughs> the foremost blog about the intersection of race and pop culture on the web. Um, she's writing has been, in, has been referenced by Gawker, Jezebel, Clutch Magazine, The Root, The Atlantic Wire, and The New York Times. And our other guest is returning to the show. Uh, since 2002, New York cartoonist Daryl Ayo has self-published mini-comics, webcomics, anthology stories, and comics criticism. Ayo's best-known work, Little Garden, has evolved and grown into several permutations that can be seen in its current form at littlegardencomics.com. Ayo is a commentator, blogger, and on comic fandom. Hello, you guys. Welcome to the show. Hey. Thank you. So... I kind of had the idea to have you guys together on this episode because we, I've had conversations with both of you guys around Luke Cage, and episode 12 of the show is a big Luke Cage episode. He's been missing from the series since he had that big fight with Jessica a number of episodes back. Um, and here we see him again because his bar gets exploded by Kilgrave, or rather Kilgrave directs him to explode up his bar. Uh, and I thought that since you know Luke, Luke Cage is really one of the big breakaway breakout characters from the show in the eyes of the general public. It could be interesting for us to also just talk a little bit about uh, what we kind of think about and identify and think about with the character at large since the three of the four of us, like our big comics geeks who've been familiar with him since before the show. So I would certainly just say to start, like I've been a huge fan of him since I read uh, Brian Michael Bendis' run with him in the New Avengers comics, which is definitely a series I recommend for folks. Um, he really brought the character back after a lot of people had ignored him, and I really appreciated uh, just, like, the writing that he did with the character, and uh, I think that he felt like a really believable person to me, and I really liked his strong connections to New York. Uh, and I was really also just happy to see an African-American guy in a large role in a team book. Like he was really one of the protagonists of the group to the extent that there was one. And I've since gone back and looked at some of the older ones, you know, which of course are cheesy and campy, like his initial comics where he appeared in Luke Cage and Power, Luke Cage, I'm sorry, that's Power Man and Iron Fist, but it was, you know, a pretty big deal at the time. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, Kendra, what, what do you think about Luke Cage? Um, so my my first discovery of Luke Cage is probably when I read Alias um, back in middle school, and mm. I keep I keep having the thought of wanting to revisit it um, because clearly I was in middle school. I didn't really know exactly what I was reading. Um, I didn't really understand all of it, and so that was my first discovery of him. And then I'm actually probably connected more to him through Heroes for Hire. Um, mostly because that I was obsessed with in college, uh, actually high school and college, and I read all of those trades and all of those console single issues as they came out. And so his, I got to know more about Luke Cage via Danny Rand, via Misty Knight. Um, and at the time, I was still kind of smarting over the death of Everett Thomas because I had just read um, the Generation X books, or was it Gen, yeah, Gen X, Mm-hmm. from the 90s, that run. And so I was kind of looking for another African-American hero to kind of, like, slide into that slot. 
and he turned up at, like, just the right time. What about you, Daryl? Uh, Cage specifically, um, I would say my introduction to him was my same introduction to any other Marvel character, which was the Marvel Universe Series 2 trading cards. So <laughs> it was pretty much... Um, those were really big when I was in, um, I want to say, fifth and sixth grade. And so there, there was Cage. He was just a card, black guy, strong. And I never really uh, got like a... I never got the comics because the comics came just slightly later and I was much more gradual with uh, going outside of the, the more popular ones such as uh, Spider-Man and X-Men. But I always just kind of associated him with that, which is a weird period apparently because not that period of his comics, I guess, was never really replicated uh, since the early 90s, to my mm. understanding. But yeah. And it sounded, so from our earlier conversation, it seemed like it was not a character that you were particularly, like, attached to and, you know, had, didn't have like, oh, a particular well, affinity for. I would definitely point out that in, you can see the same uh, in um, the same set of trading cards, Marvel Series 2. There's also a black guy who's incredibly strong, and his name is Rage. <laughs> Cage and Rage. That doesn't really instill a young man with a whole bunch of confidence for this uh for this concept so <laughs> wow that's interesting yeah oh that's interesting brett what about you um i want to say the first time i really kind of knew about him was reading like some old 70s comics that i probably mm-hmm. picked up for my brothers um and then he was never one i totally like really dug a whole lot um and then Finally, liked him more and more in the recent, more recent stuff. Um, the kind of the the revamp of Heroes for Hire that went on for a little bit, and followed him in Thunderbolts and Avengers and New Avengers and Marvel Knights and all that, um, and Mighty Avengers. So, um, but no, there was a, there was a long time I think during the eighties and nineties I just I really didn't care for him as a character. Um, hmm. Probably because I just didn't dig the tiara and the. So, yeah, for those who don't sure. know, his initial costume was, like, super 70s, but, like, yeah. um, uh, unrealistically so. Like, his 70s was so 70s, but I'm not really sure if the 70s were that 70s. Um, <laughs> Bad like, disco. it did involve a metal tiara and a giant chain belt and, like, a super undone in the front black, I'm sorry, yellow satin shirt. It was, like, pretty serious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've never held that against people, you know. I, uh... <laughs> <laughs> But it definitely is a different appearance than folks who are getting into the character through the show where he comes out dressed like a normal person and does not have any superhero pretensions that we've seen. And um, it, it feels very different encountering him in the show. And I, I bet that people who are only meeting him for the first time watching uh, Jessica Jones probably have a very different perception than we do initially. But I do feel like the portrayal of him in the series so far feels pretty true to the character's portrayal in the alias comics. Um, I feel like in other venues, he's been more explicitly political and that's not the case in the alias comics. And that's okay. It's a different kind of story there. Um, But I definitely like, I look at this Luke Cage and he doesn't seem like it's some kind of like a, you know, body snatchers situation where I expected one thing and got something else. Like I, I, I do think that he works the way they've used him here in general, um, and he, he, I recognize him from the comics, even if it's not necessarily the iteration of him that I'm the most strongly attached to. Do you guys feel like the character is in the show is really different from how you considered him and read him before? Um, not. I mean, not too different. They, I, they couldn't bring back the tiara wearing. Um, chain belt wearing Luke Cage. I don't think that was going to work, but I do think that they've set it up very well so that um, sort of the spirit of both the Alias comics and then for his own show, the Heroes for Hire comics are really going to come through um, when they finally get around to releasing those. Hmm. Well, I'm of the very strong opinion that 
there's nothing weird or unusual about the original 70s design of Luke Cage. I think he looks awesome. He's just wearing Yay. his shirt, wearing his tiara. <laughs> it's like, I mean, if a superhero is meant to be bold, I don't. I find it. I find it less outlandish than actual superhero costumes. I think it's actually pretty awesome. But uh, I don't know. Um, I, I think the show blended several ideas of Luke Cage. Um, I was just—I uh, was trying to think of some notes for this episode, and I was—and um, something that keeps coming back to me is that uh, there's um it's like there's so many different versions of Luke Cage that if you just gave them different names, it would be like a superhero team of people with different personalities. Mm -hmm. Or at least that's my main Mm -hmm. uh, sort of, that's what I pull from the different versions. I mean, maybe they're not actually that uh, different, but they seem, it seems like the different iterations, the 70s version, the the 2000s version, the 90s version, they just seem to me like different people. So I'm not even sure. I mean, if, I think the show is basically in the sense that there's so much, there's so many different Luke Cages that it kind of almost can't help but be faithful to some aspect of that character. And I would just say to folks who don't really know the comics, like you might not have ever, you might not have ever heard of Luke Cage before if you're not a big comics geek, and yet he is one of Marvel's major black superheroes. So what does that have to say that like one of Marvel's major black superheroes is somebody you probably haven't heard of prior to the Jessica Jones show? Like, I think if I asked most people, they could only name Storm until now, basically. Maybe Black Panther. Maybe. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. I think some maybe. more people might know him. But it's, again, it's a maybe. It's not like it's, – it's, it's a dire situation. Um, <laughs> and I do wonder to what extent the fact that personalities comes from the fact that like he's been forced to be like so many different black people in Marvel because they don't have other characters that they're willing to use. Right. I mean, he is, well, aside from who in the seventies was like, it was Robbie Robertson's son who was sort of their other black political stand-in character for a while. I feel like I could be making that up. No, that is right. Wasn't he at protests and that sort of thing? So it was like they had these, these two stand-in characters who they could use, and those two people just had to adapt to, you know, to the the crack epidemic, epidemic, the AIDS epidemic, the the, the prison, the industrial prison complex mm. epidemic. They just had to keep changing um, to be representative if Marvel was willing to represent those issues. Yeah. Oof. And, I, you know, in, in Jessica Jones, like, you know, we have – two major black male characters. Uh, We have Malcolm and we have Luke and they're like completely different people. And this is actually an interesting episode for both of them um, in terms of what role they play and where they end up. So I, I I actually really want to talk more about this with you guys when the Luke Cage show comes out. So hopefully we'll put a pin on that part of the conversation and get back to it then. Cause I could talk about this for the rest of the hour and that's not what I'm here to do. So, um, Let's start from the start. Uh, Jessica and Luke are standing outside of the bar, which blew up, which I have no idea how they staged that because that is an actual bar that is not blown up in real life. So I'm not sure how they pulled that off. That you um, know of. Yeah, it's a bar that I know. It's 7B. <laughs> um, and Jessica really sort of has like a way of debriefing Kilgrave supporters at this point. And she sort of like runs them through like the, what did he tell you to do? Like, you know, figuring out what the additional commands are, which is also a good device for giving us the background on how it was that Luke Cage got Kilgraved. Like, I thought that was a pretty good narrative device to to show us how we got to this point. Uh, the scene the, in the flashback when you when Kilgrave has Luke in the car and um, is asking him questions is very interesting. His tone when he says, I didn't kill your silly wife, Jessica did, is like so offensive and flip that I really wish that Kilgrave hadn't like Kilgrave Luke because Luke would have probably just wrecked him from saying that. It's <laughs> so fucked up and cold. Um, and then their whole conversation is really revealing about both characters, I thought. Like, you know, Kilgrave just keeps pushing on like, did you bugger my chances with her? And, Kil- and and because Kilgrave was exercising like essentially truth CRM over Luke, he can't even 
argue with Luke's answer, which is, no, you screwed that up yourself. Because as we know, there was no way that she would ever be interested in a psycho rapist. Um, and that exchange, I just thought, was really well done in the show. What did you guys think of, the, of those early scenes? Um, I mean, I, I, so I just rewatched this one episode. I watched the, I watched it originally when it all ran through or when it came out, I watched it all the way through. And this episode was such a great reminder of why I loved Kilgrave so much. Um, not like the character himself, but just the way David Tennant, um, chose to play him. Mm. Those were, the way he delivers lines and sort of just like, like you said, the flip way about it is just fantastic and part of what makes him so terrifying um i find him kind of terrifying and also hilarious which i understand is like weird given what he does uh throughout these 13 episodes but i just find him so entertaining um kind of in a almost less terrifying way i don't know i guess he was compared to the joker a lot when this first came out um and i find him a lot Somehow I find him a lot less terrifying than the Joker. That's just me. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I think I lost track of the. Uh, so, um, are we are we still talking about Kilgrave? Or are we talking more about that scene in the car? Oh, just general about the car. Um, you know that 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 exchange in the car, and basically how we're reintroduced to the situation with. Uh, of what happened with Luke that got him killed, graved up. General about the car, um, you know, that, 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 that exchange. Ooh, I hear car. my voice in the background. Is that coming Wait, from? Yeah. Oh. Okay. It stopped. Oh. Yeah, it looks okay. It sounds okay. Okay. Yeah, okay. Um, I don't know. I mean, it, it was an interesting, it was an interesting scene. I'm still not, it's, it, it was a little confusing on the second watch through about uh, how about well I shouldn't say confusing. It's just the uh, Kilgrave is not really that intelligent of a person. He's just a person with a lot of access, but he seems mm-hmm. to have done such a thorough job of programming Luke Cage for every contingency. Like there's this idea that that he had been controlled by Kilgrave, and yet didn't have uh and yet he managed to not reveal uh certain things about himself such as his uh his superpowers but yet and still it's very obvious that uh there is a, a very like a literally I mean he's just part of the plot at that point it's not even like something that a person could plan for that many contingencies and that many complexities to like to like plant a spy a brainwashed spy that uh anyway it the, the scene in the car is very is just. It, I think that it sends a lot of. Uh, it tells the audience enough that we just sort of uh, buy the rest of it, even though it's kind of, kind of like even for a superpower show, it's kind of like implausible. Um, but yeah, I did. I definitely did pick up on that part uh, that was mentioned just before about how, about how his answers could would in a normal show, be, like, very insulting with the part where the villain kills the person who says the thing, but it's, like, it's obviously the truth because he asked them his opinion. I thought that was, uh, I also made a special note of that as well. Mm. That's interesting. I, I do feel like throughout the episode, you know, certainly the first time I watched it, I did not think, I didn't realize that Luke had been Kilgraved the whole time in the episode. But a second time watching it through, like, I do see moments that, explain that i mean for one thing you know we were all just thinking like how could he possibly how could sorry how could luke possibly ever forgive jessica for not telling him the truth when they first met like i can understand him forgiving jessica for actually killing his wife because it was not under her control although we can get into the details on that more but how could he forgive her for lying to him about that whole situation um is basically unforgivable so the fact that he's like in this episode, in numerous numerous ways, like trying to reconnect with her, um, and we, I, I, I do feel like there's certain hints to the fact that he could be Kilgraved that you kind of only see upon the second watching of the show. Yeah, but even so, <clears throat> I, I found it 
wildly implausible, even by the the logic of the show. But still, you know, it's 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 a it's still a comics uh, a superpower show. I just uh, figured, you know, that sort of thing. You got to let some of it slide. So <laughs> I let it slide. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, it's also it's also just kind of the way I I assumed upon first watching when I first going through it that he was still Kilgrave and not really because of any of the contextual clues that were going through the episode, but just because that's how stories work. Mm. <laughs> I, I mean, it was, yeah, it, that's a good one. Just, I mean, just because if there was going to be a twist, that was going to be a twist, just sort of based off of yeah, 20 plus years of watching television. Yeah. Brent, Meanwhile, I'm personally like, I'm personally pretty likely to just believe what I'm being told most of the time, unless it's really, really like waving me down. Obvious. So I was just like, "Oh man, can't believe it." <laughs> I think I might be the ideal audience member for that sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, um, I feel like because of the fact that he's been Kilgrave the whole time, this is an episode that's particularly worth watching twice. Um, because it changes how you how you see the whole thing. Right, right. Uh, one of the one of the other things that um, we see just in terms of like Kilgrave's control over Luke in this episode is there's way more like Luke standing around and like. I don't know what the word I'm looking for is just standing around being sexy. Like he just does that a lot this episode <laughs> and that's not, and it, he doesn't like put himself out like that all the time of his own volition in the earlier episodes. And I, you know, certainly like the whole scene where Luke comes out of the shower with his towel wrapped around his waist and gives Jessica like really good detective advice while also being in a towel, which I figure is probably like the sweet spot of like how you get Jessica to be really into you is to be wearing a towel and giving her really good detective advice. And he, he hasn't, he hasn't been like that guy until now. Um, and in some ways, the fact that he's like more turned more like romantic and more like of an object of like sexual attraction in this episode than in some of the others he's been in. The fact is that, Kilgrave is doing that to him and that's super freaking creepy and it makes me sort of as a viewer who's been watching the episode and watching like Luke and being like yay Luke's hot makes me feel like guilty about being there and being like yay Luke's hot when like Luke is not in control of his body when these things are happening necessarily I don't know if that's something that creeps out anybody else but well, I actually hadn't thought of it that way, but I do kind of, now thinking about it like that, I do kind of agree with you that he's, I mean, he continues to just be another one of Kilgrave's victims. Um, and Kilgrave is using what he knows about Jessica to affect his actions. Right. I, it's also, that also makes sense when you consider that part of the package deal with Kilgrave is that he doesn't really understand how human beings work. So even if he can interrogate a guy and say, who are you to me? Who are you to Jessica Jones? Who are you in relation to anything? That whatever feedback he would get, whatever um, Luke Cage would be compelled to tell him, he would still it would still have to go through Kilgrave's own personal mental filter. And without a real, like, deep understanding of how people work, his ability to reconstruct that... Um, would be limited, but you know, just for the purpose of this show, is remarkably, remarkably passable and and able to fool people. But um, still, you know, you you end up in a situation where we have like uh, the person acts slightly out of character because he doesn't quite get it. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that one of our earlier, I think. Was it Jacqueline Freeman? Oh, I should have checked. Um, said one of our earlier guests said was you know we were talking about an episode that had a lot of Luke in it, and I was commenting like about we were sort of just like discussing about like the quantity of shirtless Luke versus the quantity of not shirtless Luke, and she pointed out that like when you have essentially like you know the first major African American male character in a Marvel TV show, like 
to what extent is it okay to sexualize him and like have it be objectification versus like have it be a positive thing where you're showing that, you know, desirable people don't just look like one thing. And I thought that was a really interesting question that I also felt like we were kind of, I felt like I was kind of revisiting here in this episode. That takes me to something. It was a conversation I've had with a friend about Marvel movies in general. And I made some crack about, Oh, I'm sure like Hemsworth will have a shirt off at some point. And he turned to me, he's like, yeah, it's on purpose. Like Marvel thinks about this and, and um, to, to play off to their audience that would enjoy that. So mm-hmm. primarily to get the women yeah. in. And I would imagine that's what this was all about. Like, I don't, I don't know if they thought about the, Hey, he's being controlled by Kilgrave and that's why he's taking the shirt off. Or if it more was just a, it's an excuse to get a shirt off to, to please the female fans or some male fans that might be liking it. Mm-hmm. Well, that was, we know now that was the whole reason that Thor had his like side magical adventure in the, in the second Avengers movie, yeah. literally just to get his shirt off and have him come up out of a pool of water. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely uh that's definitely a mandate for all the Marvel um, television <laughs> film projects. I mean, I mean, it's I, I, I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, it's a, it's a very good thing. I mean, you know, we we went through the '80s and '90s, and oh yeah, even before that as well, with uh, with action movie rules and any narrative conceit to convince an actress that this is absolutely essential that she takes her shirt off. So you know. It's a good thing that Marvel wants to push the other way in that regard. I just, uh, and I don't think that the, I don't think that the circumstances are actually very unusual with uh, regards to this episode or uh, the series in general. Uh, especially when you look at it in the light of just the way generally um, these action shows and movies uh, try to get their their sexy characters, but usually women out of their claws. Mm-hmm. But that part just seems pretty uh, part of the course. It's just it seems to stand out in my mind and our minds collectively because we're used to seeing it uh, with women actors and women characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I should say I'm certainly not complaining. I think <laughs> I'm the only person my age who watches The Good Wife, so it was really, really amusing to me to watch Tumblr lose their collective minds over Mike Coulter um, when I've, like, been admiring him wearing suits on The Good Wife for the past seven years. <laughs> so when I was watching this episode, when he goes, and I think he puts his shirt on at one point, um, I was actually at home watching it. My wife was next to me, and I, I made a crack. I said, oh, and there goes the size of millions of women across the of the, the across the U.S. watching uh, Jessica Jones, and she looks at me and she goes, "What?" And I was like, "Oh, the guy who plays Luke Cage just put his shirt on." And she just looks at me <laughs> like, "Yeah, that's about right." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I I consider like myself an advocate of like having there be more of a balance in terms of like which bodies we see in media, without a doubt. But I had sort of been interested. I was intrigued by uh, our guest's point though about flagging the fact that like it's different to like objectify like a black strong male body in that context. And I was like, okay, that's an interesting thought, but I don't feel like to me, and I'm really not a good judge of this. Like it didn't feel like it was over the, over the overboard or anything like that. Um, yeah. I mean, it's not something that we see. I feel like it's not something that's seen on a regular enough basis to mm-hmm. have this one instance be considered objectification. Um, especially since it was done within the light that it would have been done for any, if that character had been white, it would have been done in exactly the same way. Like there was no sort of special circumstance surrounding his race um, Mm -hmm. that applied to that scene. I'm also trying to think of, have have they done anything close with a couple of the the characters on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.? And I want to say one or two, they've come close. I don't remember if they were shirtless, though. Hmm. That's important. The shirtless thing is important. Like, I, yeah, I'm not, yeah, yeah. I know that sounds like a joke, but it is important in this context. No, but I remember um, there were specific things of like, hey, they're clearly doing this shot to try to make the guy look good. And I mean, like, I do remember that. I don't remember if a shirt off was off, though. Okay. Well, you'll have to report mm-hmm. back because I do not watch that show. <laughs> um, <laughs> we need to get a team out on this. Okay. Say that researchers. Um, 
So speaking of people who are uh, who are interesting, um, uh, we have some a number of scenes between Trisha's mom and Trish this episode. Uh, lots of Trisha's mom trying to reinsinuate herself upon her daughter's life, as this is an opportunity for her to do so. I just wanted to shout out in, in the in the hospital scene where Rebecca Dumonier, uh, aka mom of Trish, I, I always forget her name, it reappears. Her her entire acting performance and that scene was really good, but also totally brought me back to Twin Peaks. She feels like one of the mothers or like sort of like just one of like a complicated female, like femme fatale characters from Twin Peaks in that, in the, in this episode to me, like her whole way of acting. I, that was what that triggered to me, but I never watched um, Twin Peaks. I have no idea. I've never seen Twin Peaks. Oh my God, you guys! Sorry, it's, it's Sorry. actually the best TV show ever. Actually, I, I've never seen The Wire either, so I'm just behind. Ooh. Okay, well, moving along. Some will get this. Some will think I'm crazy. Um, what did you guys think of the various Trish Walk, Trish Walker, and her mom scenes in this episode? Of her mom trying to work her way back into her life using uh, information, basically, like from about the secret company that doesn't exist, really, to try to lure her in again. My issue with it was there was actually, I felt like there was a trip up on it where, so she reveals this whole like IGH thing, right? Uh-huh. And how there's this company called IGH, or was that later that she talks about that? It's later, but you can talk about it now. Uh-huh. I'm sort of talking about it in general. Yeah, so in general, so uh, the mother, like, I, I had issues with it. Like, one, the perform- her performance in the episode is, I think, really, really good. I mean, Rebecca DeMornay is a great actress to, be- to begin with. Um, but I actually think they, they faltered a little bit and that there's a, there's a scene a little bit later when she comes back and circles back with Trish and she's like, here's this information in a folder about this mysterious company called IGH. And Trish was like, you know, oh, they paid for, you know, the, Trish finds out that they paid for Jessica's, um, uh, hospital stay when she was yeah. a kid. Yeah. And Trish's response is, what'd you tell her about? her special powers. Is that why they did it? Which makes no sense because her, her mother right. had no idea that she had those powers at that point. And she's like, well, Jessica threatened me. And it was like, no, she didn't threaten her till like way after that. You're right. So, that it doesn't make sense in terms of the sequence of the show, no. but it, on an emotional level, like I, if I were Trish and I was angry, that might be how I would respond in the heat of the moment. And then only think later, like, Oh wait, that's not actually even possible. You're yeah, right. I guess. But it didn't bother it, me. All right, that, yeah, it clearly bothered me. I could also, I'm, I'm unsure about that as well, but I also figured, I was thinking perhaps she, perhaps the, the show, like most shows, indicates relationships through uh, single events, but you can imagine that she was probably, probably referring to it, but uh, like continual contact with them or something along those lines, I'm not sure. Hmm. I mean that that's the only thing I would I would gain from that, but you know, but you know, wasn't really short. That's a good point. Yeah, I can see that. Um, and you know, obviously, the introduction of IGH is 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 something that I imagine will probably be expanded on in the future seasons of the show. Uh, it's mm-hmm. interesting that they chose the name of a company. I've never heard IGH in the Marvel universe before. I think it's a brand new evil company. I'm going to presume evil company in the Marvel universe. <laughs> I was trying to think of that too, but I couldn't think of anything. Yeah. No, I I think they made it. Mm -hmm. I think they made it up. And that's fine. You know, it was just an interesting point to me. Um, So we, we have, you know, just as a quick aside, like, Trish actually says on the phone to Jessica in this episode that she thinks that the drugs are why douche cop sucks. And I just wanted to shake Trish because I just really thought she was smarter than that by now. But no, Trish, the, the fight enhancing drugs are not why douche cop sucks. Douche cop sucks because he is an embodiment of the patriarchy. Like that's, I just wanted to like get through the screen. I'm like, no, Trish, you're wrong. Uh, that was, I'm not surprised that that's what she said because she obviously slept with him at one point, so she doesn't want to admit that she just slept with a complete tool. Um, but that's I like hope that's a pretty real thing, though. Yeah. In what way? 
Well, I just mean the way people rationalize, uh, like, people who they know, whether intimately, sexually, romantically, or just know in general, how they rationalize their abuse when they haven't realized it and then they come to realize it. That's like one of, it's like a very common um, rationalization that, you know, it's this outside force, this outside um, element that's... uh, that's causing it. This person is 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 you know the victim of something else. If we could just remove that, then you know, everything would be fine. And that's that's barely that's so that's very common. And you know I think it's uh, important for it to be in at least one of the major characters to have that sense of, to have that rationalization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the show is very. Sorry, go ahead. Hmm? Oh no, I was just going to say I think it's also fair to assume that she probably wouldn't want to admit after dealing with her mother for so long, who was also abusive, that she put her trust into someone else um, exhibiting the exact same patterns. Because that, does, that doesn't reflect well on her necessarily. Ooh, good point. But not wow. even reflect well on her, even just a sense of her confidence, because it has to shake your confidence when you realize you've been taken advantage of or or something, you know, just uh to undermine that sensation by saying I wasn't taken advantage of. There was something else at play that's that's overtaken a situation. It you know it, it, it makes perfect sense to me that why a person would would immediately grab that as as the rationale and why that would be important for a person to to deeply believe in for their own like for their own sense of security in in what they trust and what they've put their trust in. Yeah. That's a really good point. Speaking of people who have had some really hard shit, which I guess is everybody in the show, but certainly Malcolm. um, And we have Malcolm in some scenes here. You know, earlier we see him with his bag saying he's going to go home, which I was like, yes, you should go home. You've been through a trauma. You're feeling isolated. Like assuming that your parents are good people, like going and spending some time with them is probably not a bad idea. Um, right. You know, I mean, maybe parents are bad people, but they certainly sound like good people from everything he said. So I actually was like, yay, Malcolm, go make a positive life decision. Like he can always come back to New York, you know? Um, and this episode, he has a number of different opportunities essentially to get away and to leave or to get involved in things. And he's constantly navigating what he wants to get involved in and help. And so like when he's literally almost out the door, uh, of his building with his like duffel bag, you know, he hears like a fuss upstairs between Robin and someone he can't tell who it is. And he decides he's going to get involved because like Malcolm is a social worker, like to his core, like that's who he is. And so he goes upstairs and finds Robin, who is the worst, um, trying to like basically just having a paranoid freak out at a poor delivery woman. And he, you know, he talks to her. Eventually, they, they go together to uh, the site where her brother's body had been dumped. And he just, Malcolm just does a great job of eulogizing Ruben to Robin. Like when he talks about the things that made Ruben a good person, um, you know, when, when Ruben was alive, we as the viewers were irritated by him too. Um, so it was, it was cool to see Malcolm express you know, good things about Ruben. And it also, you know, did its job of like getting Robin to have a few moments of like quiet and like self-reflection rather than just freaking out. But as always, any scene with Robin in it is really painful to watch because I cannot stand the character. What did you guys think of Malcolm and Robin in this episode? Oh, Oh, Oh. really? Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I still don't understand why she's on this show. (laughs) Um, I mean, it seems. Oh, oh no, no, go go ahead. No, I cut you off. Sorry. No, I was just gonna say that her character, um, and admittedly, again, I've only rewatched this one episode, but her character really just seems like wackiness for wackiness's sake, and I really don't like that. Okay. Well, I mean, I definitely agree with how the character is written is like that, but um. I feel like the whole set of of building neighbors is to me it feels like it's directly out of that um 
Dark Knight is the Steve Dillon Punisher comic, where mm-hmm. I think the Punisher is absolutely ridiculous in every every <laughs> aspect of the character. But like having the Punisher have these like very goofy but still human uh, neighbors in his building made the made the Punisher character seem less just preposterously terrifying and more like a human being who actually cares about other people. Because, like, I remember there was, like, some punk rock guy who was good-natured and a shy lady and some other person. And and it was sort of like that. But she was, like, the only... But, uh, this Robin is, like, the only character on this show that actually hits those sort of... Oh, well, no, I'm sorry. Her brother does, too. But they yeah. only work as one, and they only hit those notes that I saw from that Punisher, um, the, the Welcome Back, the Welcome Back Frank series where, and, and you see that. And, um, and to me, I mentally linked those and that's probably why I liked it, but it's the whole Punisher series. That particular Punisher series was much more comedic in general. And therefore that tone made sense the way they did it, but they sort of like they lifted that element without lifting enough of the rest of the general comedy atmosphere to make it seem like it fits quite as nicely in there. So I, it's like I get the reference, and that maybe that's why I like it more than hmm. most people do. Oh, that's interesting. I definitely think it was uh, a reference to the um, the Punisher. Like, the, a lot of the characters did feel like that. Um, and oh. as the watchers Okay, so I'm time, not the only one. Okay, great. No, no, no. Yeah, <laughs> I got the vibe. And you can actually see it in the which Punisher movie they had the same sort of thing going on. I don't remember if it was the first, the first, not the Dolph Lundgren one, but I guess the second one and the third one, but they had a very similar thing. Um, my my thing with, this was the first time I actually felt bad for Robin. Like when she finally breaks down and like starts crying, I, I couldn't help but actually feel sad for her. Um, well, I mean, I felt terrible for her when she thought her brother was alive because that's just... No matter oh, how yeah. the character is, that's just, that was completely horrifying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I actually I mean, thought she was, like, That was probably my moment where I thought the show was way too dark, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's one where, like, they had to do something to at least close that loop. Um, and this was the thing that, like, I actually did feel bad for her. Like, she, she was completely out of her mind, but it all actually made sense in the context of what was going on and what she was saying. Sure. Um, and her, I actually think her acting was pretty solid at this point when she's like finally kind of breaking down and crying. Um, I think it was the best part, like the best of everything that we've seen of her so far. Hmm. I don't want her around for season two, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, I do think... The, in the end of the day, the lesson of this story about from this particular story with with Ruben Robin and Malcolm in episode twelve is that life is too short to wait for slow shipping. <laughs> because you know, anyway, sorry, that's bleak. Uh, <laughs> speaking of, um, you know, we have some really bleak and terrible scenes of Luke with his dad and abusing his dad, and. Uh, they were very hard to watch, as always. Did you guys have any yeah. thoughts on those? I mean, I, I just... There, there's a lot about the Kilgrave character that I just don't... Um, it, a lot of the Kilgrave character works well as allegory or metaphor, and then some of it is just sort of like, oh, this is just super villainy, so, you know... I find that a lot less interesting and a lot less. Um, not, I, I find that a lot less um, worthwhile digging into personally because just like super villainy, there's a lot of just like savagery for savagery's sake, and you do see that in real life, of course. But as bad as it is in real life, it doesn't really, in and of itself, point to a more interesting story. I mean, I don't know. It's, I, I feel weird about it because in real life people do horrible things for very, very insubstantial reasons. And uh, this feels like that. And I'm like, oh, it's just, I don't know. It doesn't make as much for a good story, I guess. I don't know. Hmm. Hmm. 
You like his lack of motivation, you mean? Well, he has motivation, but it's more like to cover up his just general antisocial um, personality. He he wants to do harm, and he mentally justifies it with uh, various, uh, you know, the stories that he tells himself until he believes that makes it okay for him to abuse people like that. And uh, but it, it's. I mean, the show is all about that, but at the same time, the specific acts just still feel feeble and insubstantial. It's like it—it's it, a tricky balance, and I don't think it always—I don't think it always makes it. Personally, hmm. like there's very little. Um, there's very little contradiction with the character that um, you would expect from a character who's supposedly in such mental turmoil that that he's now abusing his parents openly and I don't know, it just it just seems like there's no turmoil. It's just single minded but not being an actual like mental, you know, psychology expert, maybe I have no idea what I'm talking about. Hmm. I hadn't really thought about it. Yeah, I don't really know that I was looking for him to be in turmoil. I, 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 his motivation was getting Jessica back, or at least to some extent getting Jessica back, and then he was telling himself that he wanted payback on this world that had hurt him. But I guess I didn't mind... I I didn't mind the single-mindedness because it was really kind of just chaos for chaos's sake at some points, and he did things because he could, which I don't think is a completely new idea for a comic book villain, doing things just because they can and they can get away with it and they're stronger than anyone else. Yeah, that is kind of classic, like, for Joker, for lots of characters. Um. So uh, one of the other things in this episode is we have that pursuit scene where Jess is uh, tracking the courier through the park. I was really noted at how well they were doing with the handheld cameras uh, in that scene to really make it feel sort of chaotic. And it was all, you know, shot in actual Central Park. And um, I thought that it, like, felt like a really well done, well shot pursuit scene. When she eventually loses track of the courier in the park when they get near the Bethesda Fountain, um, and the camera just sort of sits and sort of spins around her. You know, it, it really evokes how disoriented she is in terms of trying to find where the guy went. I really, res- um, I really responded to that. And then when she finally spots him out of the corner of, of the eye and you see with the shears and the horror of that moment. And having, having that uh, groundskeeper witness and be a part of it too, to me, was actually somewhat reducing of the fear, because one of the things that we're fearful of when bad things happen near Jessica, we're fearful of the fact that she might get blamed. But because the groundskeeper was right there and he saw what was happening, for once, I'm not just sitting there thinking about, oh, my God, are they going to blame Jessica? Because, like, this guy is a witness and he, sees, he saw that the, the man, that, that poor man in the suit had done that to himself. And I think as a result of that, I was able to focus more on how awful this is for that courier who was forced to, to, to kill himself in that way. Um, I, I, so I thought that was actually a useful tool for getting me to focus on the right thing in that scene. Yeah, definitely. That's a good point. Uh, yeah, because I, I hadn't thought about it because I think the sheer gruesomeness of of this particular setup is is exceptional among the uh the grisly violent scenes that that I didn't even notice how they pulled that particular sleight of hand, but yeah, the fact that there are explicit witnesses not just that it's all, not only that it's in public but also that there is a a context you know, you can see the the witness so yeah, that's a very good point. I just thought of it. <laughs> um, Fantastic. I, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, like, one of the things that I do love about that scene is the fact that it, 
it catches um, so much of the freneticism of Central Park and the stuff that they use in there, like the bubble blower and the kids running around. Mm-hmm. It's the kind of thing that some of, especially the bubble blower, like some of it seems like it wasn't planned. Um, and I just sort of love the questionable aspect of that scene. Cool. So let's make sure we get to talk about the fight scene. Um, by the way, I'm fairly certain that the church slash nightclub in this in this episode is Angel Orenstadt's center. Do you guys think that, or, or has somebody else figured out exactly what it is? I haven't been to a party there in a long time, but it's a <laughs> it's a former church. Actually, it's a former church and synagogue as well that is now a party venue. I think that's where it was. I think it's Angel Orenstadt Center. I'd love to have one of our listeners just check that for me for sure. Um, but, yeah, we have the big fight scene in the church. I kind of was wondering if there was some symbolism to it happening in a church. Maybe it's sort of like a come-to-Jesus moment for Jessica in terms of her willingness to fight Luke Cage. Um, that's the closest I could come to for a metaphorical significance to that location. But also it's just a cool setting to hold it in because it's, you know, a visually interesting location. Uh, this is, you know, a real super fight, more so even than the super fight between uh, Douche Cop and Jess and Trish because the powers that Luke Cage has are on a whole other level. Um, what did you guys think about the fight scene? Well, let's see here. Um, oh, hey. I could have sworn I had that in my notes. Maybe I deleted it by accident, but I'm not in... Well, the most important thing in that part of that scene, in my opinion, isn't the fight, but because that's when it's actually revealed that that Luke Cage has been um, under the control of Kilgrave the entire episode. Mm -hmm. So um, the fight itself, I mean, I think the fights in this show and Daredevil are pretty good just pretty good to really good in general so I, so just in terms of technical terms I think it's fine but the uh I think that that the whole point of it is that uh is that plot detail which changes the context of everything we've just seen mm-hmm. and therefore it's like whatever the, the fight didn't the fight the fight mechanics itself don't even matter at that point it's just this uh just this revelation to me um, that's the most significant part. Definitely how he quotes, you know, the line to Jessica is really creepy. And then while the fighting begins, Kilgrave actually says that sexual tension is our sexual tension. You chose wrong. You always have. And that's such a classic Kilgrave, like negging her moment and trying to like explain that. Go ahead. Like one of the one of the things about it, like that that's uh, interesting about this episode is that in my mind, and I think I can build build a strong argument for it, is that Luke Cage does not appear in this episode. You know, um, mm-hmm. there is no point in which he is himself. I mean, maybe there's right. like a few points where he doesn't have to do one exact thing, and he's therefore able to say like whatever is on his mind, but mostly he's he's generally under the control of Kilgrave, and therefore everything we thought we saw was this other guy talking, and, you know, the rest of it is just him being, you know, a human, a human wrecking ball. It's hmm. a good point. That is a good point. I think the fight's really good. Like, I actually, I think the the fight was excellent, choreographed really well. Um, and it feels like a drag-out, hard fight, um, which the previous one, like the one earlier in the season, I was not a fan of. I think it was a really poorly done fight, and kind of in this newer fight than I've seen that seems very overtly choreographed and almost like it's a dance than it's an actual fight. This one felt like a fight at times. Yeah, especially when he when she grabbed the... Uh the police door and he's just yeah. feeding it into her and I actually noticed on rewatch that you can see uh, like the back of her head consistently hitting the frame um, of the police car door, which to me, like it just sort of adds another level of brutality on top of it. 
you know, in any other situation where a person is using a police car door as a shield, I would say that it has to be symbolic. And I can't think of any way in which this, this police car door using, being used as a shield is symbolic in this context. I don't know yeah, if anybody has any theories. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I said, I just, I think it was convenient. Yeah. I know, but I still want another fight scene to involve somebody using a police car door as a shield, like have a bad guy using it to like symbolize well, how the police are actually enforcing the current power structure. You know, like this could be done for various political purposes. It just wasn't here. And that was weird for me. I was like, what well, is I think in my head, there's the simple fact that uh, Luke Cage is a uh, invincible black man and Jessica Jones is, well, she's half invincible, but, She's a white woman, and she's being protected flimsily by this symbol of the police, you know, the actual piece of their car. I mean, that's a symbol right there. Um, awesome. It doesn't really hold up. It, it, it's also kind of flimsy in the same way that uh, that part of the fight scene was not that significant because it's not really a strongly defended uh, metaphor It's within the context of the uh, of the story. Maybe just a visual um, allusion to what, like you know, this is what this looks like, you know. Yeah, that that is I was very helpful. Say, if, if anything, it kind of harkens back to um, that one scene in Daredevil that I'm sure we all know. The the heads that the car door to oh, the head scene. Yeah. Ah. From. Yeah. From Daredevil show. Yeah. That was sort of my other immediate thought. Huh. Well, as we're coming up on the hour, I know you guys have somewhere, you guys have other stuff you have to get to, but I want to make sure we talked about the last moment, which is Jessica pulls out the cop's, like, gigantic, like, I don't know, it's like a, it's like a gun, but it's big. I, I can't quite figure out what kind of weapon it is, but whatever. I live in New York, so what do I know about these things? Um, <laughs> and she says to him, she basically is like, she doesn't want to have to shoot him. And he says, like, almost as if he's in his own control in that moment, like, say, so, you know, do what you got to do. And she shoots him. And it, it looks like he dies. Don't go into saying whether or not he does or doesn't. Well, obviously, he doesn't because he has his own damn TV show coming up. But I kept getting stuck on, like, the whole point of Luke Cage is that he has unbreakable skin. Like, there's an amazing essay on comic book resources by Joseph P. Illich on the significance of Luke Cage being a literally a bulletproof black man. And the fact that, like, she shoots him with a gun, like, that shouldn't actually be a thing. Like, he shouldn't, he's not, how is he vulnerable to that? I don't know. Well, Marvel doesn't really care about black people having invincible, having invincible powers, as proven by Darwin's death in X-Men First Class. That was such fucking mm-hmm. bullshit. <laughs> Oh, we that need to open of... up another hour for that. <laughs> <laughs> it was so stupid. Like, you have the most powerful <laughs> character, like, in the entire Marvel, like, X-Men world, and you get him just off, like, casually. <laughs> it's such good yep. Yeah. Anyway. So the, um, it's priority for Marvel. <laughs> I think that scene, I think that scene makes a whole lot of sense, and, uh, you can you can agree or disagree when you get into the 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 next episode where they get into what actually happened. Um, it actually goes into a whole lot of uh, what exactly it means to have some kind of ability or some kind of power or some kind of advantage, and how far that actually gets you. Hmm. Uh, but can't say too much more about that okay. because. Uh, you know, otherwise I'll be talking about the next episode, basically. So, um, but yeah, it's, it, it was definitely very, well. Anybody who's familiar with the, cause if you're just watching the show, it's just sort of like, how much, how much damage can are you resistant to? I don't know, but like, so that's fine. But for anybody who's familiar with the comics, it's just like a guy running down the street, bullets bouncing off of him. That's pretty shocking and not what we're expecting. But you know. I think that it I think that it works. And I also think that something had to be able to they had to think of some um if if they wanted to write this scene, they had to think of some way for for Jessica's character to get out of it and it get out of it in a way that it would stop him because when you think about the mechanics of how they already set it up, it wasn't like fight her for 5 minutes. It says 
indefinitely kill her so that he basically uh, I'm thinking about the mechanics so he's got a 24 hour hold on his commands and that means that after after that point in time he would be free to his own devices but before then he would have to be pursuing her relentlessly so he had to, to he to to continue the way they wrote it he would have to be uh stopped stopped completely at that point in time in order to move on without it being a whole separate other type of show Hmm. But just because the guy is invulnerable doesn't mean that a, a gunshot in the head is not going to which is what I would have gone with of just a gun that's really going you in the head. It's going to rack your brain a little bit and you're getting no Right. I mean, I, so you're breaking up a little bit, but basically you're saying, like, even if it doesn't kill you, it's still like a, some, a, something that would actually injure somebody and slow them down at minimum. Um, yeah. I'm pretty sure being invulnerable doesn't prevent brain. Being concussion. I've yeah, never that's true. That <laughs> that's true. And, and you know, there's something just significant to the fact that she shoots him, like period. And the, yeah. the, the fact that he broke control to be able to just say, "Do what you got to do," like that's significant mm-hmm. as well. Because Jessica Very, sort of yeah. postulates earlier, like. You know, what was it that enabled her to finally break free of Kilgrave? And it was being ordered to kill Riva and, like, how, like, her reaction to it or not. And so is it possible that Luke Cage is having his breaking point now because he has been also given a command like that and can choose? Right. And, like, has, I don't know. Again, I guess I don't want people probably. Everybody else knows the answer to this question because they've already seen the end. So (laughs) I'll drop it now. (laughs) Do you guys have any final thoughts about this episode before we wrap it up or about the show in general? To our guests? Um, well, I was inclined to finish this series, and I haven't finished uh, Daredevil yet. So already, that was... I, I really enjoyed this series, and the fact that I bothered to finish it was major points in this direction. Any other well, thoughts, Daryl? I think the... I think the series is I mean I finished both Daredevil and uh, Jessica Jones I think Jessica Jones show is easily better uh, altogether I think that the Jessica Jones show is uh, playing with a lot more significant ideas than Daredevil is because Daredevil is playing with questions that normal people don't have to think about like is is it okay to savagely beat people and take the law into your own hands? Is not a real question, but like, but more like a question of when you see someone in distress, do you believe their story? Questions like that are a lot more relevant to, you know, our lives. And and there's many other questions that the Jessica Jones show asks and and provokes that are just just thematically more interesting than uh the the morality play of of moral of moral questions that we that normal people don't deal with on a daily basis. I, I so yeah, I definitely agree. It's a, it's a it's far and away better than uh, the other show, and um, and there's just so many different sociological and uh, personality types of questions and problems that the show. Ask that that even other shows in general don't always get to. So I just th- I just thought it was just an over. I mean, even when there were problems, just an overall terrific pro- uh, program. Awesome. Well, thank you guys for joining us. Um, you guys are like awesome guests. Actually, I should have introduced Kendra as a re- re- returning guest as well because she was on our famous Martin Luther King Day roundtable a number of years ago which folks should definitely go and uh, check out if they haven't yet, because that's one of my, I think, one of the best episodes of the Graphic Policy Radio podcast of all time, if you ask ask me. Um, So thanks, you guys, for joining us. We're going to wrap up now. Um, And uh, I think if you go to the link on our site, you'll see where folks can find you on the Internet. Uh, Thanks again, guys. And we'll be back with our Thank final you. episode next week uh, with some with, an, with a new interesting special guest, and we'll let you know who that is very soon. Thanks. Thanks. Yes. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for joining Bye. us. <laughs>
All right. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of Graf- of uh, Jonesy for Jessica. Um, it's our penultimate episode. We've got one more to go that will be on the air next week. We'll, of course, be posting that on uh, Blog Talk Radio sometime this week and, of course, our site, graphicpolicy.com. You can uh, catch us every single day at graphicpolicy.com. Of course, we're on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, all at Graphic Policy. I'm Brett. I'm Ilana. Keep it geeky.